This is episode 135 of the Dear Discreet Guide podcast. This episode is titled, The Soul of an Entrepreneur. This episode is part of our short series on entrepreneurship. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. David Sachs is with us with his new book, Soul of an Entrepreneur. And I'll introduce him. He's a journalist born in Toronto. He's written for New York Magazine, Vanity Fair, Bloomberg Business Week, The New York Times, Sever, NPR, GQ, and Toronto Life. He's also the author of several books, The Revenge of Analog, which was one of New York Times' uh, best books in 2016, The Tastemakers and Save the Deli, which won a James Beard Award. And now his new book here, Soul of an Entrepreneur, which is published by Public Affairs, which is an imprint that I'm becoming increasingly impressed with. So David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jennifer. All right, so we have a lot to cover today. There's one of the things I like about the public affairs books so far, at least that I've seen, is that they're quite meaty. And so we have a lot to talk <laughs> about. We have a lot to talk about today. So you start the book by talking about the myth of the entrepreneur and how our mental image has been shaped by the media. And you describe this magazine cover of this half-naked model who has actually parlayed her television exposure into a clothing brand. And then compared to that also, or similar in certain ways, is kind of the Silicon Valley startup, you know, rock star. And you talk in your book about that the stats don't actually bear out those perceptions on our part. So tell us what you found instead. Yeah, I, it was interesting. You know, I, when I started writing this book, it was this vague idea about what it means to work for yourself. And then, you know, the timing of it was, well, we're in this golden age of entrepreneurs. I mean, there are more startups and more young people starting businesses than ever before. The millennials are definitely known to be the most entrepreneurial generation. Um, entrepreneurship is sexy. It's cool. Uh, you know, the the thing that you were referring to was a cover of Maxim magazine with Heidi Klum, the, the German supermodel, posing topless and over her bare breast is written, you know, Heidi Klum, intimidable entrepreneur. Um, so entrepreneurship had become this venerable, you know, cultural good. Every university started opening up their think tanks and institutes and, and faculties of entrepreneurship. It was one of the fastest growing fields of study. And so entrepreneurship really was on the rise. It was this golden age and I wanted to chronicle it. But when I actually started looking into it, um, I remember speaking with a friend of mine, Greg Kaplan, who's an economist at the University of Chicago. And, and I was like, yeah, it's this, I'm going to write this book about this golden age of startups and entrepreneurs. <laughs> you know, it's never been better and easier to be a, a, an entrepreneur. Like, this is it. And he's like, well, is it? I was like, yeah, yeah. Look at all the 
look at this magazine cover with Heidi Klum. You know, and it says entrepreneur literally over her topless body. Um, <laughs> and look at, look at the rate. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> this is talking about sex sales. Like, this is it. Um, you know, look at look at the ads for the co-working spaces and the WeWorks. And, you know, this is the era of the self-starter. And he's like, well, you should look at the stats. And of course, he sends me the stats. And, and, and what I see is the total opposite, which is that over, you know, the past 40 years, my entire lifetime, entrepreneurship in the United States and in many Western countries as well has been steadily declining when you measure it by the measures um, that I guess would be most obvious, which is the number of people who are going out to work on their own, the number of people who are starting new businesses, the amount of people those new businesses hire and the survival rate of those businesses, all of that had been declining. Mm -hmm. And so there was this paradox on the one hand, you had this reality which showed that entrepreneurship had actually, in many ways, been struggling. And it was harder to start a business. The millennials, that generation that was supposed to be the most entrepreneurial, actually turned out to be the least likely to start a business in like 100 years. So you had this, this on one hand, that reality, right? And then you had the myth, which is everything that was being sold. And most of that came out of the world of the Silicon Valley style startup. The, the Zuckerbergs and the, the heroes of the latest startup competition of the incubators and accelerators, um, which said that, you know, anybody can go for it. It's easy. It's simple. It's cool. It's sexy. And, you know, you'll make a billion dollars. And I really wanted to understand what, what, was, what was behind that myth and what was beyond it? What did entrepreneurship really look like beyond that? Because most of us aren't working in that world. Um, most of us don't get to experience that myth. Like all myths, it's largely a fairy tale. Yeah. And on one hand, I feel like, okay, you know, it that's all right. I mean, these mythologies kind of bother me. But what really started really aggravating me was that people's dreams were being used against them for somebody else's profit. So like, you know, it's Mark, it's like Mark Twain's observation that the way to make money in mining is to sell mining claims to other people who have dreams to get rich quick. And then, I mean, you're probably familiar with author services who kind of prey on people who are wannabe authors instead of making money and writing themselves, because it turns out that's easier. And then, you know, there's all these organizations or people that feed on wannabe entrepreneurs. And after a while, you, it's like, this is not good. All these conferences that are charging people, the workshops and, you know, the podcasts, you know, case in The point. masterminds, how to crush it. Your, <laughs> exactly. your 100K success story, six-figure slayers. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, this is this was commonly referred to... I, in this wonderful article in the Harvard Business Review by a woman uh, named Maura Ahrens Belay, who's also a podcast host and just a, a brilliant individual. She called it the rise, the dangerous rise of entrepreneur porn oh. or entrepreneurship porn. And uh, the myth feeds that and many people are able to take advantage of it themselves, entrepreneurs. You know, what's incredible is because I wrote this book, both through like the algorithms of social media that see me writing the word entrepreneur and posting it all the time and just the book being out there, I've actually been contacted by a lot of these people. Oh, you know, will you do, you know, we guarantee reviews for your book on Amazon and, and, you know, you just have to pay us this. You know, if you give us like 10,000 books for free, we're going to send it out to our newsletter and make it a bestseller. It's like, nope, no, thank you. No, yeah, nope, not going to do it. But I, I think it, when the expectation of the success is so high and seen and glorified, 
it's a very easy thing to delude people into doing. I mean, that was, you know, not, not to get political, but like when you look at the roots of Donald Trump's success parlaying business into, into some greater thing, into notoriety, like it was entirely through that. I'm a successful person. I'm going to teach you how to do it. Read my book, come to my Trump university. You know, now I have this TV show, like, and, and people gravitate towards figures like him or uh, the millions of other sort of wannabes because they want that too. And it's, there's this desire to sort of fulfill that myth, to be the hero of it, um, which again, can be very dangerous because it's not something they need, right? People just need to go out and do the thing they need to do. Um, but often there's this feeling uh, that, that you need permission. And I think a show like Shark Tank, for example, you know, personifies that perfectly, right? Mm-hmm. You want to be an entrepreneur? Great. What you have to do is stand up in front of a group of mean, jerky investors and pitch them your idea and get torn apart and then give them a chunk of your company. That's what it takes to be an entrepreneur. And all the startup competitions and pitch nights, you know, they, they feed into that idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they don't say is, oh, you want to be an entrepreneur? Great. Like, go start a business. If you make a dollar, you're an entrepreneur, you know? Yeah, that's what bothers me is that it's hard enough to start a business. And now if you don't fall into this kind of profile of what we've been fed, oh, you're a failure. And it's just unrealistic. And yeah, so it just turns people's dreams against them, which which bothers me a lot. Now, you, you follow a couple of Stanford students who are looking into starting a business. I think they're uh, Gen Yers probably. And so their idea is, and they've recognized a problem, right? That it's very hard for potential interns to find internships. And yet they know there are a lot of companies out there that would love to have some Stanford students as interns. So they've recognized this lack in the market and they're starting to figure out how they could start a business that would, you know, match these two things together. It's pretty interesting to read how astute they are about the advice that they're being given and sort of the typical slogans and and things that they're hearing. You know, here's my success story by one person after another when they're, they're really noticing that a lot of it comes down to privilege and personal connections or family connections. So tell us what your takeaways were from their experience and how is that better or worse than someone who just, they're just trying to start up a carpet cleaning business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we, we started working on the book, my editor was like, okay, well, the first chapter, the first part of it really needs to be, you know, set in that world of the startup myth. Mm -hmm. Um, And you really want it to be some some company that's, you know, at a Silicon Valley and it's like, they're, they're the, you know, the archetype of everything you're saying is wrong. And so I was like, okay, well, it should be something at Stanford. Cause there's this a notion the core of the myth is like a young, brilliant student drops out of Stanford uh-huh. and starts this thing. And Stanford's the, the hub of it. Stanford is Silicon Valley. Like there's no Silicon Valley without Stanford. Intellectually, it's the hub of it. Um, you know, financially it's, it's everything. And so I, I asked around and found the, these students who were, who were doing it. And, uh, and the first conversation I remember that uh, Nikhil and Andrew and I had, Nikhil was like, you're not going to make us the evil startup bros in your book, mm-hmm. are you? It's like, could you promise not to make us the evil startup bros? I was <laughs> like, I'll, I will be open-minded. Like, I hope you guys aren't going to be evil startup bros, but if you're not, I won't. And they weren't, of course. They were no. very nice, very considerate, very thoughtful young men who were starting a startup 
because that's what you do when you're a student at Stanford and you have an idea. And there's so much encouragement and education and programs and money and just culture around it that it seems like this inevitable thing. Mm. And so it went from the story, you know, initially going out there to be like, okay, this is the story of one startup and this is what the startup myth looks like to really them being very openly skeptical about the entire process Mm -hmm. and looking at this culture around them that was glorified and venerated by the university in almost every aspect, academically, culturally, through its programming, through its clubs, and saying like, I know we're doing this and we're going forward with it. We're meeting with venture capitalists and we're working on this product and so on. But like, we're not sure about this. And and there has to be something more beyond this. There has to be something more than the Y Combinator lectures that we're giving and every week is kind of the same Mm -hmm. um, or the Stanford entrepreneurial thought leaders talks that they're hearing. You know, they were looking for something greater that gave them a deeper sense of what entrepreneurship was and they weren't getting it. They were getting that same story, the myth, the the sound bites over and over. And I I thought that reflected in a way what I was looking at too. Mm-hmm. No, I thought their observations were really interesting. It's sort of like being fed gruel. You know, it's just the same blah, <laughs> morning after morning. And one of the things you talk about, which I also thought was was very enlightening, was how education plays into this myth. And you talk about this phenomenon of, quote, clapping for credit. So what do you mean by that? Well, uh, th- that that quote came from a Business Week article um, from a couple of years ago, where they were talking about the rise of entrepreneurship education. I mean, the first course was in the 1950s at Harvard, and then there was one sort of growing thing in the 1980s at Arizona State University. Babson College at Boston has always had it, but it was a it was like an outlier in business studies or academic studies. And then, really, along with the startup myth, it, it boomed over the past two three decades. Now there are thousands and thousands of entrepreneurship courses and programs at universities and colleges all over the world. Every major university has it as a standalone discipline or or a substantial part of their business program with tentacles into every other program, as well as their in-house incubators and accelerators and startup competitions and venture capital um, arms uh, and relationships with venture capital investors. But so much of that education and research and advocacy is built around this same narrow model of a Silicon Valley style venture capital funded you know, fast-growing startup. Uh, there's this one great paper that I cite by these um, academic um, Howard Aldrich from University of North Carolina and Martin Rua from Duke, uh, and I think it came out in 2017. It showed that while uh, venture capital investments and uh, initial public offerings (IPO) make up less than a percentage of small business activity in the United States in a given year. In the largest and, and most you know credible entrepreneurship academic journals, uh, those two topics uh, made up the core of at least fifty percent of the papers. Oh yeah. And uh, I remember talking to Howard Aldrich. He's like, imagine if you know fifty percent of the papers in biology journals were about elephants and other large land animals, whereas the majority of biology, ninety nine point nine percent on Earth, are ants and plankton and microbes and viruses and other things that are actually far more significant. But elephants are big and sexy and beautiful and you can make plush toys out of them and you know create entire Disney theme parks around them. So of course, in the same way that IPOs and venture capital investing is 
big and sexy and there's money behind it. And there's not money in writing about a mid-sized manufacturing company in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And so what's being taught is often this narrow, distorted version of the myth to students. And again, that's what, you know, Andrew Chisor and, and Nikhil Agrawal were getting at Stanford and, and, and found it dissatisfying when they were trying to build a business. Yeah, you've talked about the professor's propagating this myth, but also exaggerating their own experience as an entrepreneur, which which I also have experienced where people yeah. are telling you about this, you know, this company that they started up on the side. And you look into it, it's like, well, I don't know. That's actually kind of a small thing. But <laughs> that came that came from so that comment that I made and you know that little dropped line, I'm glad you put that because um, at one point that I was, I was sitting with them looking, watch, watching this entrepreneurship lecture at Stanford and the two of them were doing their homework on the side. And I saw the name and I'm like, wait a minute, I know that guy. I'm not going to say his name. I know that guy. He, you know, he was one of two partners in a venture capital firm that my father had invested some money with. And oh. actually it turned out to be a total disaster. Oh no. And, um, and you know, he had been sued by his partners being investigated mm. by the SEC and I was, I, you know, I kind of like told them part of this and they're like, oh, he talks about that all the time. What a successful right. venture capitalist he is. He still wears his Patagonia fleece vest with the logo on it. They're like, that's, you know, that was really funny. Of course, because if you're teaching at somewhere like Stanford, so much of your credibility comes down to your, especially in business, you know, your entrepreneurial street cred, right? You have Steve Ballmer flying in in a jet and to talk, you know, to teach a lecture and to give this class. Your, your professors are, are millionaires and billionaires. You founded these incredible software and technology companies. That is so much of that is that credibility, right? The head of the entrepreneurship studies at the business school, um, Irving Grausbeck, who I interviewed and was a lovely gentleman. He owns the Boston Celtics. He's a tremendously successful telecoms uh, magnate from uh, the East Coast who came out to Stanford in the 1980s and really kickstarted the entrepreneurship education there. So again, that that sort of pressure of that myth also determines who counts as an entrepreneur in that world. Yeah, which is one of the things that's that's particularly dangerous, I think, about it. So I'm going to rag on this guy that you interviewed a little bit more. So one of them said that he had the gall actually to excuse his participation in the whole entrepreneur myth by saying, well, I'm not teaching cost accounting in Indiana. And since I'm an IU grad, that particularly graded against oh, me. No. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel as though the IU MBA program is very tactical and technical. And we graduate people who know about cost accounting systems and can do cost accounting. And it's one of the reasons that employers come to IU to recruit because we haven't gotten degrees in public speaking. We've actually gotten degrees in things that you can use in real business. So that kind of got in, under my skin. And then he also <laughs> he also talked kind of disparagingly about that he doesn't really think an entrepreneur, I mean, this is his definition, right? As someone who takes over their mother's dress shop. And again, you know, the Midwesterner in me is like, well, that's certainly, you know, a, a business venture taking over someone's dress shop. Because who knows what you could do with that dress shop, right? Um, that you could turn that dress shop into you know, a chain of dress shops or, or, or something with multiple locations or an entirely different business that begins designing dresses and becomes a fashion brand. But I think the, the problem is, and, and this goes back sort of to part of how I, when I started researching the book, 
I started talking to a lot of academics. And I remember having these conversations saying, well, I'm writing a book about entrepreneurs or what it means to be an entrepreneur. And they say, well, what do you mean by an entrepreneur? Mm. And I'd say, well, I, what do you mean? And, and so I started asking that question. How do you define an entrepreneur as the beginning of each interview? Because it gave me the sort of standard by which they were coming to it from. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting was no one ever gave the same definition. And the definitions varied wildly. You know, on the one hand, you have let's say the most broad blanket definition, which is anyone who works for themselves. And this actually goes back to, you know, 1730, Richard Cantillon, the, the, the French economist who writes a chapter of a book about the economy and includes a chapter on entrepreneurs, the first one to really define it as anyone who works for unfixed wages for themselves, mm. right? That counts everyone, writers like you and I, um, someone who has a small independent business, someone who has a medium-sized business, on and on and on until someone, you know, Jeff Bezos, who created a huge multi-trillion dollar company. Uh, but other people, you know, it was specific. Oh, they have to be, they have to be an innovator. They have to be a disruptor. They have to have a success. They have to be a success, a company over a million dollars, over mm-hmm. X million dollars. Uh, they have to see a certain growth of profit. They have to believe in XYZ. Uh, everybody reflected their own thoughts and experiences in this. But um, what I found is that the, the more you narrowed that definition, the more exclusionary entrepreneurship was mm. to the vast majority of actual entrepreneurs out there. Because there's a lot more people that own dress shops than start disruptive companies. Sure. Yeah. Let's talk about the problem with venture capital, because I, I do think this is one of the fundamental problems, not just in tech, but also in biotech, which is where my experience comes from. So Elizabeth Holmes was the CEO of uh, Theranos. Theranos? Theranos. Theranos. That's how you say that. Thank you. It's not real anyway, so we can yeah, with the right. name. <laughs> this fake Spoiler company, alert. We can, yeah, we can pronounce yeah. it any old way we want. So she was really the archetype of a VC backed CEO. She talked a great game and, you know, as things eventually disintegrated around her, it became very ironic that she won the Horatio Alger award, which is supposedly an award about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And instead she was backed by millions of dollars in VC money. Tell us about how that house of cards works and what's bad about it. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anything particularly evil or bad about venture capital as an investment, right? It is a type of investment that arrived and was created in, you know, the post-war period to fund long-term projects, research in medical treatments, biotech, if you want, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. science, whatnot, that would require so much research over the long term that it would be impossible to sort of start them as a viable business without a a long term investment in a in a chunk of that equity in the in the hope that over the long term these things would actually bear fruit and of course they sort of have the problem is that you know it was this outlier for a very small subset of very specific companies but over the past two decades that and really the past ten years that's really grown. Uh, both the amount of money that's gone into venture capital, but also its cultural cachet um, to the point where, you know, it's it's come to be a shorthand for for entrepreneurship. My, my university sent out, uh, McGill University in Canada, sent out an email, you know, entrepreneurs in the COVID crisis, a panel. And it was like four venture capitalists. Uh-huh. Um, but venture capital investing only works for a very specific type of company, right? It, it has to be that sort of 
fast growth, super high risk model that can deliver a tremendous, has the potential to deliver a tremendous return on the invested capital in a, you know, a short period, a 10-year period of time in order to satisfy the investors of the fund and the financial model. The problem is that baked into that are so many implicit assumptions about what has to happen. So if you sign up for that, if you take a check from a venture capital investor, you have to play by those rules, which means you can't grow slow. You can't grow sustainably. You can't do things in a certain way. You have to completely adapt your company to grow in the way that will work for the returns of the venture capital investor. Mm. And that is a problem. Because when you start, it's fine. Okay, it's a it's a company that's making an advanced, you know, genetic solution. It's going to take 10 years and it needs lots of money in order to get that research. That's one thing. When you're making mattresses or office spaces or 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 even something like blood testing, the demands that are being put on that is speed and growth at all costs. That doesn't necessarily make for the most sustainable business model. It doesn't make for the most ethical environment. And the problems that we're seeing now uh, coming out of all sorts of companies in Silicon Valley, both before this crisis and, and during it, can very much be baked down to the way that the venture capital model is, has shifted that. And then, of course, there's all sorts of other problems. The implicit bias that's based on a narrow pool of investors investing in a narrow pool of investments. So the majority of venture capital investors are white men who went to Stanford or Harvard. And surprise, surprise, the majority of venture capital investments go to white men who went to Stanford and Harvard. Actually, companies led by women received something like, what was it, 2.8% of venture capital investments in America in um, 2018. And I mean, a similar number for minorities, which is appalling and disgusting and unjust, but also a tremendous missed opportunity economically. And so- you know, and, and then culturally, I think it's it gets back to that Shark Tank phenomenon, the Mark Cuban phenomenon, where it's like, well, you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to go stand in front of someone like this and tell them what you want to do, and they will judge whether you get to be an entrepreneur or not when they hand you a check. But that's what's being taught, and that's what's being told, and that's what's being glamorized and glorified. And over the long run, it hasn't built fantastic companies. It hasn't done great stuff. It hasn't spurred more entrepreneurship. It's a necessary thing in certain areas, but when it's applied to companies that are selling socks online or, or silly sort of apps, it can be you know wasteful. And when it's used to try to tackle problems that are best tackled in a research setting like Theranos, it can be downright dangerous. Yeah, I think my objection to it really grew over my 25 years in the pharmaceutical and particularly in the biotech industry, where I saw it all as kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy so mm. that people who got money were not necessarily people who had been successful at bringing a useful product to market. They were people who were successful at raising money. <laughs> and so you get this, yeah. you get this kind of weird thing. And, and the really dark side of it is they're actually people who might not be particularly ethical and are willing to put up some smoke and mirrors and maybe are willing to lie a little bit in order to get more money. And then the focus is on the big exit, right? That That's really what they want. So you have this strange phenomenon in biotech where you have these quote unquote serial biotech CEOs. And really you look at their track record, they haven't brought useful, important 
innovation to the market. They've just been successful at making people a whole bunch of money. So I, this, you know, this gets a little personal for me where I just, I'm, I'm concerned about this kind of closed system of VC money. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you have, do you have any observations? About well, that? it's, it is interesting. I mean that, you know, someone compared it to house flipping, right? Mm-hmm. Are you a real estate investor who invests in a property to live in and you fix it up and you work on it and you increase its value over time? Or do you purchase a bunch of other properties and, and work with them and increase their value over time and have good relationships with your tenants and build something? Or are you someone who buys a house, puts a bunch of money into it, tries to get it aesthetically pleasing to sell it to someone else at a higher value, flipping it, flipping it, hoping the market's going to hold, right? Yeah. That last one is not very sustainable. It can make you some quick bucks, but it's it's not necessarily the healthiest thing for an economy, which we saw a decade ago in the housing crisis, the, the quote unquote great recession. So cute in retrospect. <laughs> and, and I think that the question about the exit is entirely, entirely a valid one. I mean, most entrepreneurs are not building a business in order to sell it, right. right? It's something that is close to your heart. It's something you put your soul into. You derive so much of your identity from, but the venture capital model demands as the basis of its mathematical formula, an exit. And so you're suddenly incentivized to do things to make your company not necessarily profitable, not necessarily sustainable, but sellable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's it's a house that you're flipping. You don't really care what it looks like inside the walls as long as you know it, it's aesthetically pleasing. I think about my own house when I bought it and 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 it had been sold by some house flippers to the previous owner. And like when we went in and the plumber, you know, opened up the walls because we had to do something, he's like, oh yeah, that, like your poop has been leaking into the, into the walls, you know, like there's, yeah. they didn't, they said they did the lighting on this way, but they actually just capped it. Like, oh, the vent that, you, that goes in their bathroom, it doesn't go anywhere. It's not plugged in, <laughs> right? you know, because what did, what did someone care? They just had to do it to sell it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, there's, there's not that value there. So when you see a company like Theranos, a complete and total lie. That's 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 a very extreme example. Right. But we work, right? What did Adam do? Newman do well? He sold the sizzle. He sold it to Mayoshi Son of SoftBank, um, and 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 sold this vision of the future of the world. But like the underlying economics of it, the underlying business wasn't there. It was lipstick on a pig. It was it was nothing, and it and it fell apart once that was done. And you're seeing a lot of that happening now with all sorts of these these companies because it's a very different thing to to sell an exit to investors in order to satisfy a venture capital return than building a good business for the long term which i think is what most entrepreneurs want to do and so what's interesting is you're seeing right now a growing number of people entrepreneurs investors who are interested in finding alternatives to that venture capital model mm. uh, in the technology world. There's collectives like Zebras Unite, uh, funds like IndyVC out of Salt Lake City, which are saying, okay, th- this model is broken. It incentivizes bad behavior. It doesn't build sustainable models. And we actually have to get back to the fundamentals of stuff. Here's ways that we could fund innovative, interesting businesses and support entrepreneurs without actually falling into the traps that are inherent in that venture capital model. So to switch gears here for a second, several times while I was reading your book, I was thinking about the story of the fisherman, which is this uh, classic uh, tale. It's kind of a 
parable. Yes. That's it. Exactly. A parable about the guy who runs his own little fishing business. And then allegedly an MBA from Harvard shows up and is like, oh, you're doing this all wrong. You need to grow. And the fisherman keeps asking him, well, what then? What then? What then? And eventually the uh, Harvard MBA has to say, well, then you can retire after you've made all these millions from your giant fishing business. And then you can hang out just as you are now in this little village and sh- fish a little bit and hang out with your wife and play with your kids. And so you actually talk about, you try and look into the fisherman as I see it and see what drives him. What is at the heart of what really makes an entrepreneur tick? And so what what did you find? Well, I, I think what I found is that it is different for every entrepreneur. It's Mm. entirely unique because each person brings their own experiences, their desires, their dreams, their circumstances to the work that they do and the vision they have for it and the hopes for it. You know, what what most of the book is dedicated to after that initial chapter about that startup myth is what does entrepreneurship really look like? And what I found is that each entrepreneur is sort of motivated by a different set of circumstances or a different set of drivers, their own why, I suppose, the way to put it. Mm-hmm. And, and that can be, you know, for immigrant businesses that I wrote about, for the Syrians that I wrote about in Toronto, you know, for them, it's a way of starting over and creating a new identity for themselves, not just financially, but in terms of who they are and how they, they see themselves in this new life. For other people, it's it's lifestyle, right? It is a way to have that fishing village life, to be able to do the thing that you enjoy or just to balance and have more control over the life that you want, uh, which is you know sometimes referred to as a lifestyle business, which is what most entrepreneurs have. For other people, it's a way of expressing their values through business or you know working in a family business, a way of building upon a legacy. Each of these things comes down to who that entrepreneur is. And you can have three entrepreneurs, each starting a dress shop, let's say, and three of them will, will approach it in entirely different ways because it, it's such an individualistic human experience. I think that's why, now that you're explaining that, I do think that's why I get a little cynical about this label of entrepreneur that sometimes gets put on people that, to me, I'm a little skeptical about whether or not they're an entrepreneur or not. Here in San Diego, Ernst & Young gives out annually an Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Oh, yeah. And, and it always goes to somebody who's really just been kind of picked to run a fairly medium-sized company. You know, they're not the Syrian immigrants. That's not the people that they're picking. So that always seemed, like I say, I was always a little cynical about that. Or people who are put in business by their fathers. It sort of makes, makes us think about Donald Trump again. But yeah, what I really enjoyed about your book was you go into depth about some of the immigrant businesses. So maybe you could tell us a couple of those stories. I found those really moving. Yeah. Well, you know, I picked, I chose to write about immigrants and, and, and entrepreneurs because it's, there does seem to be this correlation, at least in the imagination about immigrants as entrepreneurs. They're, they're, they are, do represent a slightly higher proportion of the population on average as entrepreneurs than the average American. I see. And and that's due to entirely understandable circumstances. Most immigrants come here, you know, their prior experience, their prior connections, their prior capital, it doesn't come with them. 
Uh, and so they often have limited options and, and have the ability to sort of start over that push, that necessity in a way. But what, what I found when I was interviewing uh, Syrian immigrants who had arrived in the past you know, five, six years in Toronto, where I live, where we've accepted a, a large number of Syrian refugees uh, and immigrants into Canada um, over the past couple of years, for them, it was, yes, it was a way to you know, start making a living, but it was also a way to rebuild a life. They, they derived so much identity from that because it allowed them, what they all said is it allowed them to, to, to retake control over their lives, to build uh, something that having a life that was uprooted and, and being in an uncontrollable situation, such as fleeing a civil war, this was something they actually had could, could direct. It, it sort of regave them a sense of agency over their life. And, and that was, that was really interesting because, you know, still it was a tremendous risk. Most of them probably would have done better if they had taken a job somewhere. But I remember talking to uh, Amir Fatal, who uh, fled Aleppo with uh, his wife, uh, first to Turkey, where he started like a youth hostel for other refugees. And then Mm. to Toronto, where he started a small catering business, which he still runs with his wife, uh, delicious food. And I said, well, why did you do this? Is it because you couldn't find a job? He goes, well, no, that was part of it. But like, you know, I used to work at a restaurant in Syria as an accountant. It was a really successful restaurant and I hated the boss and I hated working for that person. <laughs> and then I had to flee the war and, 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 you know, snipers on rooftops. And we got out in the middle of the night and got to Turkey. And as soon as I started that business, I was like, this is it. I'm never going back to working for anyone in my life. He goes, if you win from your bucket, it goes in your bucket. And if you lose from your bucket, it goes in your bucket. And this is what I want to teach my children. You're, you know, you, you gain a sense of independence as an entrepreneur a sense of freedom that comes with tremendous costs, but uh, that was so important to him. After he, he didn't have money, he didn't have success, the business was struggling and still struggles, you know, they do okay. But he was just so grateful to have that. And that to him is what being an entrepreneur meant. And many of the other Syrians that I spoke to in Toronto, who, you know, came from very diverse backgrounds, some were like, Ad, ad, ad executives uh, in Dubai and other places and had money. Others, you know, had uh, food companies in Syria that were lost in the war and had to rebuild from scratch. And others were very sort of poor, but they all cited that freedom as, as a core reason why they became entrepreneurs in Canada and why they valued it so much. Because again, it was the thing that allowed them to define their identity under their terms in this new world. And that was worth more than, you know, any money that they could get. That's so interesting, that idea of self, self-sufficiency when you've kind of lost your own identity, right? That It's a very interesting human uh, psychological reaction, I think. I hadn't thought about that before, but it's, you know, this question, okay, here I am in Toronto. Who am I? Right. Well, now I'm this. I've created yeah. this. Yeah. Yeah. You're not a pharmacist anymore. You're not you know, uh, Hussam from, from Damascus, who is the, the big player in the, in this, in the engineering world or whatever, like that's, mm-hmm. that's gone blank slate. You are, you know, starting from scratch. So who, who are you going to define yourself as? And most of us define ourselves through the work that we do. So especially if you're the face of a business, if you open a business like the Al Sufi family did, called Sufis, which is literally your family name on the sign. Like, <laughs> you know, my first book was about Jewish delis and it was just like, those were all immigrant businesses too, once upon a time. Um, and it was like, what's your name? Goldberg. Okay, we're going to call your place Goldberg. It's like, mm-hmm. just add an apostrophe and an S, there's your business name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's so many of those, you know, so many businesses 
had that name. And again, like that allows them to craft that identity. You know, that's Hussam al-Sufi, the, the gentleman that, you know, with, with his family opened this other food restaurant or Syrian restaurant near me in Toronto said, you know, this is like, I am known here as the guy behind this restaurant. People know me. We've met people. We built our identity as new Canadians through this restaurant in a way that would be very different if I had a job, my wife had a job, my kids had a job, and we would just be these people. Like this, this is our identity now. We crafted that identity. We decided where to open the restaurant, what it was going to be like, how people dressed, the atmosphere, how we related with people. We're, we're, we're able to write our own story through entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very revealing. So in the entrepreneurship myth, there's kind of some snobbery about the quote lifestyle businesses. And again, I think about the fishermen. So uh, you also spend quite a bit of time talking about lifestyle businesses. Give us some examples and uh, like how how many of those businesses are there? Um, I mean, I don't have an exact statistic, but you have to think about what is a non-lifestyle business, right? A lifestyle business is defined or was originally defined in the 1980s by a professor in New Hampshire as a business that primarily exists to fund the lifestyle, the living expenses and costs of its owner or owners. So when you think about that, you know, outside of the small number of companies that have outside investors, the small number of companies that, you know, have to have a sale and an exit in venture capital returns or, you know, IPO in the stock market, like you're talking about 90 something percent of businesses 90 something percent of entrepreneurs are are running lifestyle businesses. They can be very sort of small, a coffee shop, you know, a home career coaching business as my wife has, uh, sort of a, you know, a, a restaurant or, or auto body shop, but they can also be mid-sized businesses. They can be fairly large businesses as well. Just the lifestyle changes. It gets, you know, you get more possessions, you get more savings, you get more employees, but that's, I think, what most entrepreneurs want. It's like, I have an idea. I would like to do it and have, having a good lifestyle is, I, I think, what most people want. But again, a lifestyle business doesn't fit into what a venture capital investor wants. A lifestyle business doesn't fit into what a private equity investor wants. It doesn't return that uh, amount of uh, investment on the, in the initial capital. And so it's become sort of a four-letter word. But for most people, it's an incredibly desirable thing. Yeah, there's a certain amount of exploitation that goes into this also, you know, this whole idea of following your passion. And um, you mentioned the van life, the hashtag van life. Van life. (laughs) I was thinking about those Instagram photos that I've seen, of you know, kind of this, people are making their money by selling a dream to people. You know, this, this could be you, you you could, you too could be. We will sell you the van. (laughs) have your life in. Right. Yeah. So talk about that in contrast with the real small owners that you found in your research. So I, so I wrote that chapter of the book about lifestyle entrepreneurs in a place that is kind of driven by them. And it's a, it's oddly enough, a part of New York city called Rockaway beach. So it's oh, right yeah. where, where the planes land, you know, meet the land from the ocean of JFK. It's a, it's a strip of beach, a very narrow peninsula, you know, still concrete and broken glass. And, and it's still very New York city, but you know, you can surf there. And, um, mm-hmm. and so this community of surfers and entrepreneurs who moved out from the city and opened up small businesses there has formed. Uh, and I wrote about Tracy Abalski, who was a pastry chef in New York at these great restaurants, but got burned out, missed being able to go surf. She was living by the beach and couldn't do it. And so she quit and started her own little bakery and coffee shop and she runs it and she does 
well, uh, but more importantly, she wakes up and gets to surf every day, ride her bike along the boardwalk, go open her bakery, make the food she wants, play the music she wants, dress the way she wants, and then go back and do the same at night. I had a great time eating croissants, talking with her, drinking beers and going surfing. It was it was great. And it was like, this is such a wonderful lifestyle. And many of her friends and other entrepreneurs in the area who owned a clothing store or had a podcast company, they chose to live out there and built their businesses around that lifestyle. You know, that is really what it is to someone like that. Um, I, I see myself as a lifestyle entrepreneur in a lot of ways. I work for myself and I write books and I do talks and whatever, but I, like, I'm not a crazy workaholic. I like to enjoy my time. I like to go paddle boarding. Um, I'd like to be able to go skiing. I see that you wrote a book about moving to a ski town. I was like, oh, damn it. I got to write that book one day. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you still have ideas of things. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I, if I could write a book about moving to a ski town, don't, don't think I haven't thought about it every year. <laughs> I was like, how can I do it? What approach can I take? What would I do that would actually work that uh, this would make sense? That's kind of the dream, right? Now, you know, when I was talking about the dream and Tracy and Rockaway, like she has to do with the gas company and the city decided to tear up the sidewalks at the beginning of summer. And, you know, there, there's the, the first entrepreneur I knew was this guy in Rockaway Beach was a guy, Steve Stathis. He was this big gravelly voiced New Yorker, worked for the gas company, Con Ed, for many years, retired. His kids said, oh, we want to start a surf clothing shop. Then his kids basically left as soon as they started doing it. And he was left with this surf shop called Borders, which he's grown into three locations and an and a indoor golf bar and like a couple of surf rental kiosks on the beach. And I was like, Steve, you're living the dream. Like you have, you have the surf shop, you live by the beach. You know, he was one of the founding surfers in Rockaway. He's like, yeah, I get into the water about once a year. I didn't even get yeah. time to sit at the beach. I scrub the toilets. I pull the hair out of the, unclog, you know, unclog the drains from the hair that all the surfers used to wash off. He's like, yeah, all the glory. That's the reality of it, right? It's like the restaurant business. Like, oh, I love to cook. How great would it be to own a restaurant? <laughs> right. Yeah, I think that really comes through in your story about Tracy is how hard she works. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, you know, yeah, she it's trade-offs for her and she's happy about that. But yeah, there's a there's a lot of work. And and you know, I think that's the part that I just want to make sure people are aware of when they're being told, follow your dream, follow your passion is there's a lot of work, there's a lot of risk. You talk in your book about being nervous about whether or not you're going to land your next writing gig, how your book is going to do. You know, that there's some great things about it, but it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, where that truth of follow your passion might actually bear some fruit is like, you'd better enjoy what you're going to be doing because if you're getting into it to become a billionaire, and to make that big payoff, the odds are, even if you're the smartest, most brilliant engineer, business executive, that's not going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. It's just the odds of that are just not, you know, not everybody wins. And so what is the, what are the actual reasons that you do it and you're going to do it because that's, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get that guaranteed. So if your goal is to have more freedom over your time or control the way your life goes, like whether the business is good or bad, you're going to get that. Mm-hmm. If your business is to give back to your community and you build your business around that, you'll get that. You know, if you have the, if you enjoy doing the work you do and you want to find a way to do it under your terms, that's something that you can guarantee as an entrepreneur. The six, the financial aspects of it, all the aspects of the risk that that's that's the cost of that. You're going to need to bear that as well. 
So a few more stats here, because I, I thought some of these were really interesting. You talk about how economists are pushing frequently. They'll make an argument that we should have larger and larger businesses. And so tell us what kind of pitfalls you think there are in that kind of concentration and how is that different from what we've seen previously in the U.S.? Yeah, I, I think there is this idea, this sort of, let's say, macroeconomic idea, which is not wrong, but it, it says, look, you know, the, the larger a company is, uh, the more efficient it is, the more people it can employ, the better off it is for investors. And so look at, you know, a GE or an Amazon or a Boeing, like greater concentration is actually better in the long run. It's what drives GDP growth and tax revenue and, and all these other things. There was a book that came out while I was researching the book. I remember reading it when I was in Palo Alto uh, doing research at, at, with the young man at Stanford at night in my Airbnb because there's actually nothing to do in Silicon Valley at night. It's a oh, wow. boring place. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> uh, maybe there is. I didn't look for it, but. Uh, it shuts down pretty early. Interesting. Anyway, it was called. It's called um, "Big is Beautiful," and it was kind of a play on on Schumacher's uh, "Small is Beautiful," which came out in the nineteen seventies. And it's saying, look, like when you look at all these measures, employee health, benefits, you know, labor relations, like big companies are actually better. And also, like if we want to drive innovation and invention, all that bigger is better. And these small firms are inefficient. And we and it's a good thing that there's fewer of them, and the startup rates going down. And, and other people point to me and say, look, like you want a country with a high rate of entrepreneurs, 20, 30%, like go look at Madagascar, Mozambique, Sri Lanka, you know, the least developed countries have the highest number of people who work for themselves because there's fewer jobs for them. And, and it's, it, they're not, those are not wonderful places of, of full of entrepreneurs, it's full of people scraping to get by. Mm-hmm. The problem with that argument is... One, it uses size as a justification for size. So, you know, the argument that, well, the biggest companies employ the most people, obviously, (laughs) yeah, yeah, thank you. There's your Nobel Prize for math. Mm -hmm. But I think the other is, you know, and, and we're really seeing this in the crisis right now over the past, you know, two and a half months since the pandemic arrived and the sort of shutdowns of businesses and, and the economic toll happened is we're seeing in our communities the value of those entrepreneurs and small and medium-sized businesses have to us. And part of it is economic, of course, the people they employ, the taxes they pay, um, so on. But the other part of it is like, these are the businesses that make up the fabric of our communities, the places where we get our haircut and our coffee and our lunch and and the dress shop where we get the, you know, our clothes repaired. And we're actually seeing a lot of those shut down and we're not sure how many of them are going to reopen. Mm-hmm. And the prospect of that is terrifying, not because of the economic toll that it may take on our lives, although of course that's real. It's like, what is my community if it doesn't have these businesses? You know, there's a restaurant near me in Toronto that's been in business since 1961. It just closed last week for good. Mm-hmm. Il Gatto Nero, an Italian restaurant, like one of the cornerstones of Little Italy where I live. Was it a place that served good pizza and meatballs? Yeah, definitely. Delicious. But um, more than anything, it was like, it was a place to go. It was a place that was the anchor of that corner. It was the anchor of a community. It gave so much more. And I think we forget that about entrepreneurs. They're they're more than just the, the numerical sum of their profits and losses. They are individuals who build these businesses that form the heart of the society we live in in ways that we interact with on a daily basis. And that's a value that isn't captured, you know, mathematically. I just learned that the oldest bar restaurant in Mammoth Lakes, the town that I ran off to, 
uh, has announced that they're closed. And, and I was just shocked. It's like, my God, you know, that place is an institution and that's it. Boom, it's gone. And, and it also turns out that these small businesses employ a tremendous number of people, right? I mean, we saw that in the pandemic, but now we've just got, I don't know what the claims are going to be tomorrow, but we're already at 36 million unemployment claims. I mean, a lot of people were employed by small businesses. Yeah. And, and I think we, you know, we, we've, we've tended to prioritize the few big companies that employ lots of people, um, whether it's, you know, an Amazon or a General Motors, because, you know, those numbers are so big. And when they announce those mass layoffs, you hear about it. When a restaurant closed down and 20 people lose their jobs, you don't really hear about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, yeah, I mean, that's it, right? That's the fabric of the world that we live in. That's what an economy is. And so when, as we rebuild from this, the idea that, well, we only want to focus on fast-growing startups that can turn into huge multinational companies is a, a completely ridiculous and false one to pursue. It is not going to be that. It's not going to, that's not going to get us back. We need to rebuild the big and the medium and the small and everything in between. And what worries me about the big is I recently did an interview with a woman who quote unquote broke the story about Enron. Well, when Enron folded, you know, there were a lot of people who lost their jobs. And so it's not like it's too big to fail. You know, what happens if Facebook comes under some regulatory restrictions that causes them to lay off a tremendous number of people or Amazon or, you know, when when we get such concentration of employment in some of these companies, I just think about, well, now the risk is huge. If those guys yeah. go under, now we're, we're now we have a huge employment problem. Right. And you think about a city like Detroit or or coal country in Virginia, where so much becomes dependent on a sector or a certain company. And, you know, when Bethlehem Steel has has issues or, you know, that that company declares bankruptcy, that's it. Right. That's all she wrote. All of a sudden, market concentration, its advantages are not tremendous. And of course, it pulls down all the small and medium sized businesses around it. I think the most affecting story for me in the book was about the owner of the Mariposa Ranch, who's such a character and a really funny guy, but but also in some trouble, you know, in some some economic trouble. And he's running sort of a family business, but really it's just him and, and his wife and children participate, but really it's all on him. And you can tell how difficult that is for him to be facing potential failure. And you talk about the slogans from the mythical entrepreneur, you know, fail fast, fail forward, fail upward. And and you describe in the book, really failure can be a disaster for a family owned business. So tell us a little bit about those kinds of businesses and their failure rate. You know, the failure rate, it changes by the year, right? Let's just say that the companies that last 20, 30, 40, 50 years are the exceptions to the mm-hmm. rule. Many businesses close and fail in normal times. I'm not talking about now for you know entirely understandable reason that the, the rate of churn is, is something that is going to happen. So failure is a natural phenomenon and it has to, you know, it's not every business can be a success uh, and it has to be sort of thought about and factored in. I think what's happened is we've glorified failure in that Silicon Valley myth. And a lot of that came out of engineering culture of, you know, design failure and learning from it, which is a a very viable and and interesting and wonderful thing is like, you're making a prototype for something, you try it out. Okay. That didn't work. 
learn from that failure and figure out how to do it better. Mm-hmm. That's then applied to an entrepreneur's career. Okay, start a business, you raise your capital, didn't work. All right, you failed. All right, you can start it again because you did really good with that one. And we invested in you last time. Don't worry. And I think that message is like, don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. Failure is good. Embrace failure. Well, that's fine if you're going to working with you know investor money. You don't put too much of your money in it. And when the business fails, you're able to you know move on maybe with some money. I mean, you know Adam Newman uh, walking away with potentially I don't know what however many billions of dollars it was from the, the implosion of WeWork. Oh yeah, um, he did. He did the fine. Most, he did fine. <laughs> now now they're trying to pull that back, and he's trying to sue them. He'll wow. still do. You know he'll he maybe he'll have a couple hundred million instead of the billions that he thought he was going to have. Wow. Or the people who fail at you know that you know some venture capital funded business and then go and start two more, but. If you're a farmer like Seth Nitschke, who I talk about in the book, who, you know, started Mariposa Ranch as this grass-fed beef operation, doesn't own land, you know, leases a couple of ranches, you know, and, and really is like shuttling his cows back and forth. You know, his business makes some money, but not a lot. Yeah. Uh, he still has to have a second job in feed sales just to just to make ends meet, but he's got a lot of debt. And it's not bad debt, it's operating debt. It's debt, you know, each cow he buys, like, you know, between accounts receivable and when payables come in, you know, he's got to hold a couple hundred grand worth of debt just uh, just to keep things going. That's the normal course of business. So when he, if that business fails, like, you know, the debt's secured by the house, the debt's yeah. secured by the cattle, uh, that is a destructive thing. And the emotional toll and the human toll, that is tremendous. That's nothing that can be glorified. There's not a lot of lessons you can learn from that, you know, now in this crisis with so many businesses facing failure and and failing due to circumstances entirely out of their control, mm-hmm. what, how do you fail up from that? How do you learn from the failure of, of, you know, your restaurant going out of business because it simply doesn't work anymore or your, your travel company or your um, cruise ship line? No, I don't, I personally don't <laughs> cry too many tears for the cruise ship line, but there's so much of that that's, I think so personal, right? That there's a there's a wonderful study um, out of Germany, and uh, this professor sent it to me recently, and it showed that entrepreneurs, when they lose their business, they actually experience a greater sense of loss by an order of magnitude than people who lose their jobs. Sure. And because they identify not just with the place that they work and the money they made, but like that that their their identity is tied up in that. So if Seth were to lose his business, which he hasn't and, and hopefully isn't and you know meets more in demand now so he 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 should be doing okay but you know he's a rancher like he's a cowboy and he said and you'll appreciate this because you're in Southern California he's like my nightmare is being forced to move to Orange County and sell insurance mm-hmm. you know to trade his cowboy boots for uh, a pair of of loafers and a pair of slacks like that that to him is is failure. Well, and again, it's this sense of identity, right? Who he thinks that that he is. And to go back to what you're saying now, if we are anticipating a lot of businesses, many of them have already announced that they're closing. I can imagine a real sense of anger amongst people like that who were being successful in their businesses. And now, as you say, due to circumstances outside of their control, now they have failed. And it really wasn't their fault, but the pain of the failure I suspect will be very acute and could drive a lot of anger. I think 
you know, we can Absolutely. be looking at a, at, a, at a tough time for us here. Yeah, no, it, it builds resentment, I think. And that, in it, you know, as you see with the problems with the, you know, U.S. government loans and assistance to small businesses, um, I mean, that resentment is, is not going to be forgotten. Um, and it will seep its way into politics and, and all sorts of other arenas. Yeah. So, yeah, looking into the soul of an entrepreneur uh, during a pandemic is, uh, yeah, we can be very sympathetic to those people and what they're going to be going through. So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the listeners where they could find your book or a website or anything you'd like them to know? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I am on social media, uh, probably most likely Twitter, though not to try not to too often, especially with two kids to homeschool and take care of these days. Uh, but you can find me there, uh, Sax David, S-A-X-D-A-V-I-D. The book is available wherever books are sold. And of course, you can order it from your uh, multinational global conglomerate that uh, corporates <laughs> tax tax bases in Ireland or something, so they don't pay any tax. You know, I would encourage you to contact your local independent bookstore and see if you can get the book from them or any book, honestly. Because again, you know, do you like having a bookstore in your community? Is it something that you value? Does it give you a sense of pleasure and joy and and, and community? Then support that by buying this book or another book that you really wanted to buy because you listened to another episode of the show. Right. Well, thank you so much for writing the book. I, I really enjoyed it. And I'll just say, I, we didn't have a chance to talk about this, but I'll mention this to the listeners. You also talk about the values that entrepreneurs bring to their community or their employees or to the world uh, through their companies. And it, it's really an interesting part of the book that we didn't get to talk about today. So if that's of interest to the listeners, I really encourage you to pick up a copy of the book. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It was such a pleasure to speak with you and I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.